is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald is my name and welcome to the program this Wednesday lunchtime. Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong has arrived in China for the first diplomatic visit to the country since 2019. So does this mean that the trade wars with China are now over? It's a positive thing, but uh, you know nobody's kissing and making up and forgetting what's happened in recent years. Absolutely, people should be cautious about it. I think the Australian government is quite cautious about it. You can see by the way they speak about the relationship. They don't try and uh, pretend uh, it, it's something that it's not. Yeah, we'll be taking a look at what this visit means for Australian ag soon. Also today, Telstra's plans to allow another mobile provider to share its towers in regional Australia has been knocked back by the ACCC. Why? I'll tell you more soon. And as you're looking for some fruit to put on top of your pavlova or your dessert this Christmas, keep an eye out for a new variety of strawberry that has started to hit the supermarket shelves. So what, what we've got in the Zara and why it's so, so special is really a very strong, authentic flavour, I, I would call it. It's, uh, it's a lot sweeter than your average strawberries as such. Yeah, I'll tell you more about that new variety up soon. Well, the Northern Territory's mango season has all but wrapped up with the last of the Catherine and Mataranka fruit on its way to southern markets. The only other region still to pick some mangoes is tea tree in central Australia, where there's a smaller crop there. But for the top end, it's been a bit of a mixed year for mango farmers, with rain affecting picking and the quality of mangoes. And there was also an overlap between regions, which uh, saw prices really being driven down. Uh, Leo Scaleros is the president of the Anti-Mango Industry Association. Uh, Leo, uh, there's a saying that no two mango seasons are the same. Uh, What was different about this season? For us in particular, we we had a lot of early fruit. Uh, Many farms didn't. And then, of course, the rain. Uh, Most people got caught up in the rain uh, and... You know, the Territory was looking at a a bumper crop, um, but I think that um, the rain really affected most most growers. I know it affected us. Uh, Even though we were early, we still had a later season crop. Um, But, yeah, just that heavy monsoonal trough we got in there for a week or two uh, really, really uh, stuffed up the industry. Yeah, it was, so it was very hard for most growers. Yeah, early on in the season, there was a fair bit of rain around the Darwin rural area. What sort of issues did that cause for growers? Oh yeah, well there was it was probably mid mid season to to normal season. It wasn't early uh, for the Darwin growers that it was actually a little bit later, but um, there was there was fruit lost to wind, and then. Most of the fruit ended up with uh, anthracnose or, or black spot or some some form of uh, fungal fungal or bacterial uh, issue from the rain. And so, was there much fruit that had to be thrown out or, or couldn't be sold? Yes, yes, uh, a heap of fruit. Uh, I, I think 
the industry would have had well over three uh, from the Darwin area, three million trays from the Darwin area if, if the rain event didn't hit us. And uh, that really affected the market as well. Once, once that fruit started hitting the market, uh, it just took a big downturn. Yeah, okay. So the Darwin region ended up on around 2.6 million trays. Uh, so, yeah, if you said it was forecast about three, um, that's, a, that's a significant loss for, for, for many Darwin growers. Well, I think, I think that three was fairly conservative. Uh, I think we, we would have been up close to the three and a half or, or even close to four. Um, I think it was a massive loss for the industry. I know some growers only only started a few days and that's all they got. Um, and they just left the rest of their fruit on the trees. Um, I know our, our particular orchard, we were, we were going through and leaving five trees and picking one. That's, that's how bad it was. Yeah, that sounds pretty tough. Um, growers you've been speaking with, um, how are they feeling about it all? Um, has the season wrapped up? Um, well, a lot of them are just already just gone into tightening their belt. Um, they they can't spend money on fertilisers and so on, and they've just got to try and get through the next year and hope next year's better. Yeah, there there was um, as I said, most of the farms only had just started picking or were about to start picking when they the rain events started coming in. Yeah, tough. Uh, these are the things you have to deal with when you're a farmer, hey? Yeah, that's right. Um, it, and it's been a, a hard couple of years, two or three years actually, for the for the mango industry. There's got to be some luck coming around sooner or later. But in, in saying that, a lot of a lot of growers, uh, a few growers, did have very good years. Uh, we had our second best season, um, and the fruit earlier on was very good. So in August and September, early part of October, before that rain came in, uh, we had some great, great fruit with record prices. If you're just tuning in, this is The Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald. You're on ABC Radio right across the Territory, and you're hearing from Leo Scaleros, the president of the NT Mango Industry Association. Leo, in terms of volume, the Catherine region's harvest was down a little bit this year um, at around 1.8 million trays um, down from its forecast. What are you hearing about uh, how the season was in Catherine? I think there was a, a little bit of rain issue there as well, rain and storm issue, but I, I'm not 100% sure why, why they were so much down. In the last few weeks or so, it seems like there's been a lot of fruit on the market with Queensland coming online. Has that really pushed prices down for the, for the end of the Catherine season? Yeah, definitely. The market's, the market's been down right from the end of October going through into, into November um, because of that rain-affected fruit that was on the market. And then I believe there was around five, five regions hitting the market at the same time, there was still Darwin fruit in the market when Catherine fruit and from Cooktown, from around the um, Townsville area, some regions and and some even from around Cairns area, all hitting the the market at the same time. Uh, and that's never good when we get a lot of a lot of regions crossing in and um, yeah, the supplies 
that, that old supply demand ratio. Um, if you've got too much fruit in the market and predominantly bad fruit, if there's rain affected fruit in the market, it always pulls the, the price down. Um, you can never get enough good fruit. Um, but if, if there's too much second grade fruit on the market, that's what pulls the market back. Is there anything that can fix that situation, Leo, uh, with that overlapping of, uh, of regions um, in terms of and, and boosting all that supply? In a perfect world, probably, but uh, I don't know what it is. People always uh, want to keep going. I, I guess we could stop in one region and go into the next and, and um, try to get the flowering manipulation right and the timing right. Um, some years it works out, some years it doesn't. But with the increase in varieties and the extension of our season, I think that's going to be happening more and more uh, as we get earlier varieties and later varieties and um, more more um, flower manipulation techniques. I can see uh, a time where a lot of regions that will be crossing over. So yeah, I I think it'll get uh, worse before it gets better. Well, Leo, with the harvest season pretty much done and dusted for, for most growers in Darwin and Catherine, uh, what's next on the agenda for, for mango farmers? Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, uh, we've, we've been um, busy preparing the trees for next season, so fertiliser down and hedging and pruning, grass maintenance and all the rest of it. So, yeah, that's busy preparing before we... We take a break over Christmas and I think everyone's out there trying to catch that million-dollar fish as well. So if we can get a few fishing days in, that, that helps as well. Well, I hope you get that. Uh, thanks for having a chat with the Country Hour. No problem. Thank you very much, Dan. That is Leo Scaleros. He is the president of the NT Mango Industry Association and he's a mango grower in the Darwin rural area. So the top-end mango season pretty much done and dusted. There are still a few more mangoes, late-season varieties uh, on their way out of the Catherine market, um, but, yeah, pretty much all done. Uh, looking at the latest stats out from the Australian Mango Industry Association, uh, Darwin had around 2.6 million trays sent down to markets, and Catherine, uh, it is forecast to do around one8 million trays. It is uh, 19 minutes to one. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're We're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives and you're listening to the Country Hour. Well, Penny Wong, Australia's foreign minister, has just got off a plane in China to lead a diplomatic trip to that country. The first time uh, an Australian official party has gone to the country in a couple of years. There's been a lot of tensions, trade tensions between the two countries. Uh, What will this historic trip mean? Uh, We'll be taking a look after this tune by Margot Price. (laughs) 
Margot Price there with four years of chances on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Well, Foreign Minister Penny Wong and Australian officials have arrived in China in the first official delegation to visit the country since 2019. The trip has been touted as a historic event and a massive step forward in repairing the two countries' diplomatic relations. But what does it all mean for trade between China and Australia? Well, the Lowy Institute's Richard McGregor says there's still a lot of water to go under the bridge before things are back to the way they used to be. It's a positive thing, but uh, you know nobody's kissing and making up and forgetting what's happened in recent years. Absolutely, people should be cautious about it. I think the Australian government is quite cautious about it. You can see by the way they speak about the relationship. They don't try and uh, pretend uh, uh, it, it's something that it's not. But nonetheless, if you consider where we were at the end of the Morrison government and now where we are only five, six months later towards the end of the year, then things have changed. The atmospherics are better. We've not only had ministerial-level contacts, we've had a leader-to-leader meeting and we've had multiple contacts at the ministerial level. So I think things have changed, but you know, there's not going to be immediate you know, political and commercial benefits from that. Okay. The impact on certain export commodities is well documented. But looking back, can you just recap for me exactly what the nature of those restrictions were and what the the impact has been? Well, I think China targeted about $20 billion worth of Australian exports to China and, you know, like barley, uh, wine, lobster, meat, for example. And in some sectors, that it had a substantial impact. Wine in particular, which went from about a billion dollars plus to zero. And in the case of barley, which are available markets, which were shut off and Australian barley had to be sold elsewhere at a lower price. Um, So, yes, it's definitely had an impact. But in the larger scheme of things, in terms of value of two-way trade, it did not have a huge impact because resources like iron ore, uh, like LNG, like wool, Australia is either the dominant or large supplier of those commodities. China can't get them elsewhere or couldn't get them elsewhere in the short term. So that's really just continued. So the trade relationship overall is still very healthy, but in some sectors have been badly hurt. Earlier you mentioned that the change and the commercial benefits may not or likely won't flow overnight. If I was a barley grower and I'm planning my um, seeding program for next year, you know, would it be wise to be planning for within the next 12 months around increasing barley plantings in the hopes of, of this diplomatic effort renewing the market? Or is this a longer term story? Look, the last thing I would ever do is give advice to farmers or uh, barley farmers, but, but I'll, I'll give you my sense of the politics of it. I think the first thing which will determine this is Chinese demand. If they can't get it from uh, elsewhere and Australia is the only supplier, then they're happy to do that. And there's a very good example of that at the moment in Western Australia with wheat. Australia is supplying record amounts of wheat to China at the moment, and that's you know, partly because of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was a big exporter, and obviously that's been disrupted, and it's partly because 
WA has had excellent crops recently. So China is still sanctioning Australia at the moment, but when they need the wheat, they'll buy it because China won't self-harm. So I think that's the most important point is demand. Secondly, if you're a barley farmer, do you really want to rush back into the China market, even if there's a premium there? Because there could be further political problems down the track and trade could be disrupted again. And the same goes for Chinese buyers as well. They want to, you know, re-cement quickly what had been a long-term relationship and the knowledge that their government could pull the rug from under them at any moment. Now, so in short, you know, if the demand is there, the Chinese will buy it or try to buy it, uh, but the geopolitical risks uh, remain. It's hard to talk about Australian-Chinese relations without focusing on iron ore, which is our biggest export, and it's a key cornerstone of our commercial and trade interests. How do you anticipate that this renewed diplomatic activity might impact that market? Well, I think the lesson of the last few years is the diplomatic relationship has had very little to do with it. Chinese steel mills needed our iron ore. They couldn't secure it from elsewhere. Brazil had a problem with COVID and mining safety and accidents. And so Australia has become just is as, sorry, China is just as or even more so reliant on iron ore than ever. Now, there's a couple of factors going into, you know, the next 12 months. Now, obviously, I would never try and predict prices or volumes, but what are those factors I'm talking about? The first is a return to growth of the Chinese economy if they get out of this, you know, sort of pit of COVID zero that they're in at the moment. But certainly the Chinese government is focused on a return to growth and stimulus, and some of that would flow through to construction and obviously iron ore. Secondly, uh, how much does Brazil pick up? Because Brazil is back in the market these days. And thirdly, I think the most interesting and most sensitive issue is that China has uh, now set up a state company in which it wants to act as a kind of central buying authority for iron ore. In other words, this is kind of what the Japanese used to do in the 90s when they were the dominant buyer. And China obviously wants to use that to control prices, not just stop them going up dramatically, but to also uh, push them down to a degree. Now, nobody knows whether that will work in practice or whether it can work, whether it's compatible with the World Trade Organization. But I think that's the most interesting new factor in the next 12 months. So essentially a single desk at the buying end out of China when it comes to iron ore. It is a single desk up to a point, I guess. We're still waiting to see how it unfolds. But I think the Chinese government so far strong-armed, you know, the big Chinese steel mills to try and attempt to force them to buy in this fashion. But China has many other hundreds of smaller steel mills buying as well. So it's no easy thing to, you know, Japan, by contrast, has had a few big, relatively speaking, you know, just a a handful of big steel mills. And the Japanese system could manage that. China is far bigger, far greater demand, far more steel mills and has proved more difficult to organise, but the Chinese government seems determined to have a go. Okay. So ultimately, these meetings uh, between the Australian and Chinese government are notable, but we're not going to see changes overnight when it comes to trade. I don't think so. You know, I think there takes time to restore trust. 
You have to rebuild political dialogue, I think, before uh, the trade issues are solved. Of course, we're likely to get a decision, I think, you know, in the first half of next year on the Bali case, which has been in the WTO. So that might trigger basically an effort to, you know, fix at least that commodity. I think there's a wine case before WTO as well. And of course, China has taken Australia there for some of the duties we've imposed on their imports into Australia as well. So I think there's a lot of water under the bridge yet to go on trade. Richard McGregor, he is a senior fellow with the Lowy Institute. He was speaking there to Jessica Hayes. And you can keep up to date on the Foreign Minister Penny Wong's visit to China via the ABC News website. Hi, I'm Jake Stringer. I'm the manager of Kidman Spring Station and you're listening to The Country Hour. Well, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has knocked back a deal proposed by the nation's third biggest mobile network to share phone towers with Telstra. It would have given TPG customers better coverage in regional areas and Telstra argued it would reduce congestion in the bush as well. Uh, the ACCC's Mick Keogh explained to David Clawton why he disagrees. Well, we have to assess the decision on the basis of either its effect on competition in the mobile market, particularly in regional zones of Australia, or in the event that competition is going to be diminished, then whether there's benefits associated with it that outweigh the the deficits. Now, on both those uh, tests, we weren't satisfied that the result would be Um, a better long-term competitive situation for mobile telephony users in uh, regional Australia, but also Australia more generally. So it would have allowed the largest uh, supplier of telephone services, being Telstra, to join up with the third largest, which is uh, TPG, under this agreement. Um, In the regional zones, they would still be separate um, telephone companies in the um, metropolitan area, but in the regional zones... And our concern is that that reduces the potential future competition, which, of course, we know is critical to improving coverage and getting uh, better telecommunication services in regional areas. But for TPG, it would have improved their coverage in regional areas, yeah? But only to the extent that Telstra provided that coverage. In other words, TPG would be completely dependent on Telstra for its coverage in the regional zone. And in the case of 5G services, would actually have to wait six months after Telstra uh, switched on 5G services in regional areas before it could also offer 5G services. So, um, yes, it would mean that TPG customers would obtain coverage in a lot of areas in the regional zone that they don't currently have it, but it also meant that um, longer term, uh, it's enti- it would be entirely up to Telstra to determine what investments to make to improve that coverage. Um, it would result in one completely dominant supplier of networks in the regional zones, and that would be Telstra. Uh, and that dominance would be on the basis of both uh, the number of towers and the infrastructure they have in those zones and the the spectrum that they would acquire in those zones as a result of this deal. And uh, our concern is that that would mean that other providers either wouldn't enter or, in the case of existing providers, 
would see that it's no longer worth their while to try and expand their coverage because Telstra is so dominant. So I guess we likened it to a uh, uh, the recent football grand final where <laughs> one side was so dominant that uh, the other side uh, no longer uh, was competing effectively and, uh, and therefore no advantage was coming out of that competition. Mm. And no one likes to watch a one-sided match. Now, <laughs> uh, Telstra and TPG offered court enforceable undertakings to address your concerns why wasn't that good enough when we had a look at the um, undertaking that was offered it consisted of um, principally um, a provision that um, tpg wouldn't decommission um, any of its existing infrastructure in the short term Um, there were quite a few qualifications on that um, remembering this deal involves TPG shutting down um, some hundreds of its existing towers and giving another 169 to Telstra um, as part of the deal. So basically the the undertaking really only secured what was already going to happen because a lot of those towers were under leasehold agreements which would require TPG to uh, continue to have them in place for at least some period of time and and we weren't satisfied that longer term particularly um over say a 10 plus year period that those towers would be maintained and that of course then meant any chance of tpg for example further developing its coverage in regional areas or indeed combining with optus for example and and really creating a competitive second coverage in in uh, in regional areas would have disappeared Mick Keogh, he's the Deputy Chair of the ACCC. Speaking now to David Clawton about the ACCC's decision to reject a proposal for TPG to merge with some services with Telstra. It is approaching the 1 o'clock news. Uh, up soon we'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau. Uh, but first, uh, the news. I'll speak to you in five minutes' time. Hello. My name is Jihan Abdelani and I am a PhD student for Growing Australian Native Rice and you are listening to Country Hour. G'day there, great to have you along for the Country Hour this Wednesday lunchtime or whatever time you might be listening to us later in the afternoon on the podcast. My name is Dan Fitzgerald, thanks for joining me. Uh, Still to come in the next 25 minutes, uh, we're going to... A try out a new variety of strawberry. So what, what we've got in the Zara and why it's so, so special is really a very strong, authentic flavour, I, I would call it. It's a, it's a lot sweeter than your average strawberries as such. Yeah, keep an eye out on your supermarket shelves for that one. Uh, and if you're out bush, how's your internet connection? Is it slow and expensive? Well, if it is, stay tuned... You're going to hear from a remote cattle station that reckons it's found the answer to better connectivity. But let's take a look at what's happening with the weather. We've got Billy Lynch at the Bureau today. Hey, Billy, how are you going? Hey, Dan, I'm good, thanks. That's the way. Uh, rainfall figures overnight. Uh, looks like um, a fair bit of the territory got a, got a drop. Yeah, it really did. Um, so I guess we can summarise it as sort of the northern half getting between about 40 and 80 millimetres. 
so Timber Creek uh, on the Vic Highway had about 38, Port Keats Airport 40, um, Darwin Airport 52, uh, Thorax Cemetery 55, um, and then the, the two best falls was um, the uh, Bradshaw um, 86 millimetres and Nayawili 98. And then across the southern half of the Territory, um, Tennant Creek picked up around 16 mils or so, and um, Upper Bronze Springs, just north of Alice, about 8 mils. Yeah, that's um, all good stuff. Uh, some of the figures that we've seen on Facebook is uh, Huckata Station has reported uh, 41 millimetres on the plenty. Um, a bit further north, uh, 30 millimetres at Hayfield near Dunmara. So, um, yeah, good sprinkle around um, this afternoon. Can we expect um, further storms? Most definitely, yeah. So um, the radar, if you, you care to take a look, is uh, showing quite a lot of colour with um, scattered showers starting to build up now with a bit of heating. Um, that will continue throughout the afternoon and we'll see a few more storms embedded within all of that as well. Um, in the, the short term, I guess... The initial focus of the, the heavier rainfall will be around the, the Gulf of Carpentaria, um, so the eastern Arnhem District uh, and down around Borolula. And this is associated with uh, a ridge along Queensland and then this monsoon trough, which is starting to move southwards towards the, the top end. So we're getting a bit of a squeeze between those two weather systems. And uh, the next couple of days expecting um, yeah, widespread showers and scattered thunderstorms and potentially up to sort of 100 to 200 millimetres. Um, and, you know, there is the risk of some rivers rising. So um, we may this afternoon issue a flood watch for that region. The Carpentaria this we're talking about? Yeah, that's right. The, the Carpentaria, um, so that I guess the MacArthur River would be sort of the, the major river um, within that region. Um, now, separate to that, or sort of separate to that, is the monsoon in general. Um, so that's still developing and is still sort of sitting to our north um, through the Arafura Sea. And we do have a low which has developed now sort of in that region between the Tiwi Islands and Timor. So that whole weather system is still forecast to drift southwards during the next couple of days. Um, the weather today is sort of streaming in from the east or the northeast. I think tomorrow with that monsoon approaching across the, the north coast, we'll start to see the weather come in from the north or the northwest. Um, and then, yeah, that uh, southward progression of the monsoon continuing throughout Thursday and into Friday, so... Yeah, okay. And that low you mentioned, um, is there any chance of that intensifying any further? Well, there, look, there is a small window that it, it will do that. Um, so our tropical cyclone outlook is um, giving it a, a low, sort of about 10% chance of reaching a tropical cyclone just before it uh, crosses the Kimberley coast on Friday. So yeah, there is a small window where it could do do that, but it, it's most likely not going to reach cyclone strength. But um, even if it just strengthens uh, in some kind of moderate fashion, it's likely to enhance uh, the, the monsoon across the western top end, uh, particularly from Friday. And then we're expecting that low to begin drifting over inland parts of northern Australia near the WANT border from Saturday. So um, rainfall increasing through 
parts of the Gregory, the, the Vic River catchment um, then. Um, so we've got well, one flood watch that we do have out on our website at the moment um, has been extended to include a couple of extra catchments today that wasn't included yesterday. And that does include that upper Victoria River catchment. Um, and also extending much further into central Australia. So now including um, the McDonnell Ranges catchment, the Simpson Desert, for example. So so that includes the Todd River and Alice Springs. So yeah. it, it's yeah not entirely sure where the heavy falls will exactly land, um, but that general region over the next few days can see an increase in some heavier rainfall full totals. Um, generally through that Tanami and um, southern Barkley region, I guess we're looking at sort of 20 to 50 millimetres, but um, we could see the odd fall of, of 100 millimetres or more. Yeah, and, and when might the bulk of that rain hit central Australia? The bulk of that rain will be Thursday and Friday, Dan. Um, after that, it does depend a little bit on this tropical low and sort of how that evolves. But um, today... It's pretty clear, just some patchy cloud, but this afternoon we will expect some, some thunderstorms uh, which could produce some, some local heavy falls or damaging wind gusts and um, yeah, we'll issue some thunderstorm warnings if that's the case, but um, that more sort of scattered to widespread heavy rainfall will be during Thursday and Friday. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's a bit going on with the weather at the moment. Um, must be keeping you busy. Um, anything else we need to know this afternoon? Uh I don't think so, Dan. Just, um, yeah, if you're interested in the flooding, pay attention to our website because there might be some, some more detailed information about a flood watch around the Carpentaria rivers. And um, obviously just uh, it's Christmas, so there's a lot of travel about. So just, you know, be safe, um, check conditions before you start heading out on the roads and that sort of thing. Yep, there's a lot of storms out there this afternoon. Uh, thanks for the update, Billy. No worries. Thank you, Dan. That is Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. And, yeah, if you take a look at the weather radar right now across the top end, um, there are just small little storms everywhere all the way from uh, pretty much from Daly Waters uh, north. Uh, Nullumboy looks like it's getting a lot of rain at the moment, as does uh, Maningrida, Warrawee. Um, so, yeah, as Billy said, if you're out on the road, uh, stay careful and stay up to date on the ABC or via the Bureau's website. It is 13 minutes Past one in the country hour. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators, and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. Well, getting good, reliable internet that doesn't cost an arm and a leg has long been a challenge in remote parts of Australia. The NBN's Skymaster service was touted as a, a big solution to this problem, but for some, that hasn't fixed things. But as Alice Marshall explains, there's a newer product that seems to be working well for some remote cattle stations. From his cattle farm near Roma, Peter Thompson, the chair of the National Farmers Federation Telecommunications Committee, laughs at the idea of replacing his work ute with a Tesla. But he's happy to pay $140 each month into Elon Musk's back pocket. Having battled for years with multiple internet modems, data-sharing SIM cards and other Wi-Fi-boosting gadgets, 
Mr Thompson was at his wits' end before he was introduced to Musk's internet provider, Starlink. Up until recent times, we had to spend an absolute fortune, up to $2,500 a month to have enough modems, SIM cards to uh, share our data, to get enough data to operate. Basically, we're a family farm with two families here and through COVID, we had another family out here as well. Uh, but that was what we had prior to Starlink. Obviously, COVID uh, brought about the, uh, well, there already was Zoom meetings and whatever, but now we've got Zoom and Teams and Google and we've got things like you know, MBN Skymaster. We're not in a fixed wireless footprint here, so only satellite, but a big issue with that is the, the uh, very big ping speeds, for those that don't know what ping is, uh, but just to give an idea, mobile generally is about 32 milliseconds. We're finding that the um, Skymaster satellites can be six to 700, and that's simply the physical time it takes a signal to go from here up to those high satellites and back. But uh, Starlink is pretty consistent around 34 to 45, so very close to mobile ping speed. So you don't get that delay if you're on an online meeting. Starlink is different to a service like NBN SkyMuster, though. It uses thousands of low-Earth orbit satellites, or LEOs, to connect people in remote areas. The Thompsons installed their own Starlink service in May. (laughs) Really simply bloody fantastic. The only outage, we've had a couple of little blip outages which you can go on your app and see when they are and what they are. Nothing that to the, this point has caused us any issue at all. We had one massive, massive storm. Uh, we used to find with the old geostationary satellite that even just too much cloud in the sky would um, drop them out. They're up 10,000 k's up. These ones are... Uh, only uh, you know, the LEO satellites are only, depending who they are, sort of 500 to 1,000 k's, so not as anywhere near as affected by cloud. But the um, this massive storm, we did drop out uh, for about 20 minutes and it resorted itself and yeah, hasn't missed a beat, so um, yeah, really like it. Jennifer Medway is the manager of the regional tech hub an independent body that offers advice and support to people in rural, regional and remote areas. She says they've seen a big uptake in people switching to Starlink across Australia and that it benefits everyone in rural and remote areas, not just those who sign up for it. It's a slightly different model perhaps than what we're used to in Australia. For instance, Starlink want to sell straight to the customers, whereas you know we can see with NBN, for instance, there's retail service providers that are actually the ones that are the interface with consumers. So, look, they are doing things a little bit differently. And, and with that competition and with that new edge of a way of doing business, it certainly, um, you know, disrupts the market somewhat. But that's a good thing. Um, you know, and, I've, and, you know, speaking with some of the other providers, it's a good thing that, you know, they there is options. Um, you know, to be honest, people, I'm sure, um, you know, some of the other the providers, if they're helping service people in rural regional, um, then that's a good thing. And, and look, look, we do find that the people that do, um, that have, uh, you know, installed uh, um, Starlink are actually enjoying that service. We don't hear, um, you know, too many issues, um, given the fact that there are some, you know, there are challenges around the fact of not having, you know, shop fronts, for instance, in Australia or that sort of connectivity that they can actually speak to someone. But, um, you know, there are other positives as well. But on her family-run grain and cattle property near Glen Morgan on Queensland, Western Downs, 
Wendy Henning feels like she's tried every gadget available. We're on SkyMuster Plus. So when there seems to be, um, you know, whatever it was and whatever reasons that our service isn't strong enough for us to be doing what we're wanting to do on our devices, we then um, hop on to our mobile um, data plans and we will hotspot devices if it's not directly linked um, with a data plan. We'll hotspot to laptops and things to that to be able to ensure that we can have that connectivity. Along with that, we have significant family data sharing packages on our um, mobile phone plans, which we use as our backup for hotspotting and also for um, data downloading and uploading as well. And for that, we aren't in a mobile so service um, guaranteed area. So, um, well, some probably say we are, but we don't. So we've then got a um, mobile booster as well, um, the old Selfie system, and we've recently upgraded that as well so that we've um, got a tower to make sure we have enough connection when the power's running to um, the internet in whatever way we can. Despite all of this... It's the thought of changing internet providers yet again that is holding Wendy Henning back from installing Starlink. Yeah, so I have been looking and I suppose now after um, so many years of different solutions being sold to us or being um, advised to us that, you know, are going to be the, the golden egg of our connection problems, I... I I'm very aware of the Starlink system and of people that have, have made that change over and are loving it. I guess um, <laughs> the cynical is probably where I would describe myself at the moment and just sitting back and watching because that's how we were sold our mobile data plans and that's how we were sold our SkyMaster plans and things. these were going to be our answer. So I guess I'm sitting back just watching to make sure that is Wendy Henning. She runs a family grains and cattle business on Queensland's Western Downs and she was speaking there with Alice Marshall. It is 20 minutes past one here on the Country Hour. Uh, time now for a tune, but up after a bit of John Farnham, we're going to be checking out this brand new variety of strawberry. Farnham there with Chain Reaction on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC Radio right across the Territory. Now, we can all name plenty of apple varieties, your Granny Smith, Jonathan's, Jazz, but can you name a type of strawberry? I know I couldn't, uh, but there is a new variety of strawberry that has just started to hit Australian shelves. It is called the Zara Strawberry. Meg Powell uh, headed to a berry patch in Tasmania and had a chat with Marius Boraza from Driscoll's Australia and Cameron Folder from Costa Berries about this new strawberry. So we've got uh, some of the very first um, Zara strawberries. Um, Zara, it's a new variety um, that has been commercialised in, in, in Tasmania. It's the variety that it goes uh, in our sweetest batch uh, label. That's uh, a super sweet strawberry um, for, uh, for the Australian customers. So a nice, red, shiny strawberry. Very perfect looking. Looks like a cartoon, even. Okay, can I get you to take a big bite out of it and then describe <laughs> me the flavour? Yeah, sure thing. Why not? It's, uh, I've done that a few times. Yeah. Let's... Uh... <laughs> mm. This is really good. So what, what we've got in the Zara and why it's so, so special is really a very strong, authentic flavour, I, I would call it. It's a, it's a lot sweeter than your average strawberries as such. Um, and this is on the back of um, 
um, the genetic improvement as such, the work that our breeders are, are always doing um, while they select new genetics, but also um, the way that, uh, that um, Cameron and his team, the growers in Tasmania, are, are growing the variety. It's a lot in, the, in, in what the growers are doing to, to get that sweetness and the pop in flavor in the strawberries. Sounds delightful. Are they growing anywhere else? So um, in the, the currently only in, in Tasmania, in Australia, the variety is commercial in, in UK and has been um, sold as a premium strawberry in UK since 2017. So um, 2022, the first year uh, for, for it in Australia. Tasmania's long, long summers with great day length um, leads to growing a, um, you know, a fantastic fruit i guess that's the same with most fruits grown in in this state it's a long ripening time plenty of time for the plant to develop those flavors mm. um you know driscoll's have quite a lot of berries grown in in southeast queensland still and really the tasmanian production complements that really well so australian consumers can have strawberries year round out of those two strong production areas. You've got a million of these Zara plants here now. How long have you been working on this? So uh, it's, it's been a while in the making as such. Uh, we've started working on the Sweetest Batch Strawberry Program since 2018 uh, when we've had the first uh, two um, strawberry plants arriving in, in, in Australia, um, effectively trialling it from 2020, um, and that was really to perfection the um, growing techniques uh, and fine-tune them to the Tasmanian climate. So you would say uh, four years all, all up to get to uh, a million plants where we are today. Is that fast? It sounds fast to me. Uh, yeah, it's fast. I think, uh, you know, when we're looking at our, our processes where we've got uh, everything fairly well refined and, and a lean process to, to accelerate um, the deployment of new varieties um, that are, are worth uh, the effort as such. Yeah? How creative can you get with these, with these new varieties? Can you make sour-flavoured ones, lolly-flavoured ones? Um, yeah, look, it's um, yes, it is. I mean, uh, I'm not the, the the expert into into breeding, but there are um, selecting processes where you can go for slightly um, grapier flavor in the strawberries, if that makes sense. Candier, as such. Um, uh, so yes, there are, but it's a it's a long burning technique and. I don't know the ins and outs of it, to be honest. <laughs> so, pretty technical. <laughs> it's pretty technical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting that. You know, you get a group of people like us here and you have a discussion and something go, oh, that's a bit sweet or I prefer something sour. But I think um, sales data tells a different story and definitely the, um, the sweeter um, and, so, and not so much in strawberries but the other berry size, um, really we're seeing good, good consumer demand for, for sweeter, larger um, berries. Are these on the shelves yet? Yes, yes, it is. It is on the shelf. So um, uh, it's been uh, available for about uh, three weeks now in uh, Tasmania and on the mainland. This, this variety, as well as being sweet, we talked about that a lot and the flavour of it, but it's also had a few um, attributes as a grower that have been good, which actually translate for a, a um, consumer as well. And they're fairly firm. Uh, they're a mid-size sort of berry they're not the really big ones they're sort of medium size strawberry perfect shape 
firm, good shelf life. They'll last a long time. So yeah. To really enjoy the the flavour of of the strawberries from a consumer perspective, the best would be to um, bring fruit to ambient temperature, keep them out of the fridge for a couple of hours before you consume them, and that way you'll really uh, enjoy the the flavour of of the new sweetest batch strawberries. Like a cheese. That's exactly right. That <laughs> <laughs> is Marius Borza from Driscoll's Australia giving Meg Power a taste of Australia's newest strawberry variety. Now, just quickly, as uh, Billy Lynch of the Bureau said, uh, the Bureau has now released an initial flood watch for Carpentaria Coastal Rivers. So we're talking about the towns, the Lemon Bite, the Rosie, and the MacArthur, Robinson, Calvert, Sediment Creek, and Nicholson Rivers. Uh, possible flooding in those rivers from later this week. There's more details on the Bureau's website. That's it for the Country Hour. Take it easy.